The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 6, the party opens the trapdoor in the storage room and finds a simple root cellar. But there's a second set of stairs leading down from the root cellar and deeper into the earth. The strange odor is much stronger here. Umura recognizes it as the smell of embalming agent, which she recalls from a funeral ceremony attended in her youth. The party soon discovers a destroyed laboratory and follows some disturbing sounds further into the underground complex. Soli seems especially anxious to move forward. The source of the noises turns out to be not a group of prisoners, as Soli had hoped. At least, not exactly. They have found a trio of Raffenfell's angels, zombie-like creatures who attack the party on sight. Chapter 7, Part 1, Day 2, Late Evening, Status, Soli, 4 out of 9 hit points, Umura, 3 out of 5 hit points, Girios, 6 out of 7 hit points, Eridine, 4 out of 4 hit points, Spells Available, Umura has memorized Shield. The party has come face to face with Raffenfell's angels and must defend themselves. Full stats for these creatures are available on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, but here's a quick recap of the description. At one point, these three were a family, but Dermond captured them and delivered them to his master, who transformed them into near mindless thralls. They have an AC of nine, and six, six, and ten hit points respectively for child, mother, and father. The adults are armed with shovel and pickaxe, which do one to four points of damage. Raffenfell's angels never check morale and feel no pain, no matter how badly they are injured. Since the angels are several feet away from Soli before they charge him, I'll give the party a moment to take an action before the fight begins. 
Soli can do little but brace himself for the onslaught. And Gyrios has used his free action to attempt, and fail, to turn the angels, having mistaken them for undead. Eridine is in the back, and to throw her dagger would certainly have a good chance of hitting an ally, so she will not take any action. That leaves Umora. I think it's time, given the danger they face, to use up her spell of shield. She casts it on Soli, which takes his armor class from a 9 to a 4. Soli's going to need all the help he can get in the next few moments. Round one. Neither side is surprised, so it's straight to initiative. The angels. A four. The party. A one. Before the angels can strike, Soli the dwarf is suddenly surrounded by a shimmering field that clings to his form like a second skin of crystal. In an instant, it's gone. The largest angel bears down on Soli. It needs a 14 to hit his armor class of four. The roll? A 12. Soli dodges away from the heavy mining pick as it whooshes by his head. Now it's Soli's turn. He needs a 10 to hit the angel's AC of 9. A 14 for 6 points of damage. Soli puts his sword all the way through the angel's lung. Soli wrenches back his sword and a gout of grey blood spurts all over him. But it doesn't even seem to notice the wound and continues the attack. Nobody else can take an action this round as the tunnel is too narrow to maneuver in. Round two, initiative, the angels. A two, the party. A four, Soli is fighting like a dwarf possessed. He tries to plunge his sword into the creature a second time. A 10, for five points of damage, Soli shoves his sword through the heart and it dies instantly collapsing forward and almost wrenching the sword from the dwarf's hand before he can pull it out. Wow, this is going very well for our dwarf. I wonder where this surge of power came from. Round three. Initiative. The angels. A four. The party. Six. Soli clambers over the corpse of the first angel and lunges at the second, who is... the child. Soli swings viciously straight down at the child. He rolls... An 11, another hit, this time for five points of damage. He's shorn the left arm completely free of the child's body. More gray blood splashes over the wall. Unfazed, the child angel rushes up to bite him. The angel needs a 14 to hit Soli's AC of four. An eight, Soli knocks it backward with a powerful kick. Get back. Round four. Initiative. The Angels. A five. The party? A one. This creature is relentless and tries for another bite. The Angels roll. Nat 20. The child manages to get under Soli's guard and bites him on the throat. The shield spell flickers. It hasn't been able to stop this from happening. The Angel can do one to two points of damage. But on a critical hit, it does maximum damage plus a roll. There's a 50% chance that our dwarf goes down right here. We'll roll this on a die four. One to two is a one, three to four is a two. 
I've rolled a two. Soli is still alive, with one hit point left. He pushes the creature back, but it takes a piece of his neck with it. A bright ribbon of arterial blood sprays from Soli's neck. He claps his free hand to the wound. Soli redoubles his efforts. He swings. A two. Soli has been badly injured. And now he has to make a choice. To fight or attempt a withdrawal. I think he'll attempt a fighting withdrawal and yell to the party to retreat to the laboratory. Everyone back! This won't be automatically successful though. Soli will have to win the next initiative to be able to pull back in time. Round five, initiative. This roll could mean life or death for Soli. The angel's roll, a four. Soli's roll, a one. Soli has stumbled backwards over the corpse of the first angel. The child angel is immediately on top of him. It needs a 14 to hit him. The roll. A 16. The creature bears down with his teeth. Gray blood gushing from where its arm had been splatters the helpless dwarf. The child bites down on his throat for a second time. For two points of damage. When the child pulls away from Soli, there's a large piece of flesh missing from the dwarf's neck. A bright red pool of blood quickly forms beneath the dwarf. Soli looks back at the party. His eyes are pleading. Tell Morgi I tried. And then he dies. The party members watch in abject horror. They might have stood there staring, but Eredine yells, The three remaining companions have managed to retreat into the laboratory. They don't have time to mind the many jagged shards of broken glass on the floor. I will rule that they can each make an ability score versus luck or lose one hit point from stepping on the glass. Girios. A nat 20. Normally we want to see a roll like this, but not this time. A nat 20 is the worst possible roll. A huge sliver goes directly into his left foot. This roll is so bad, I'll rule that he takes double damage, or two points. Umura succeeds with a three. Eridine has also stepped in glass. She cries out in pain as her bare foot is slashed. She takes one point of damage. The angels are right behind them, but Girios manages to slam the door of the laboratory in the nick of time before they can get to him. There's no lock on the door though, and Girios must physically try to hold it closed. The angels are extremely strong, much stronger than they'd been before Raphidfell put them through a hideous transformation. They're banging against the door, and sooner or later, Girios won't be able to stop them. I can't hold them much longer, he yells. Umura moves into the laboratory's entrance and aims her dagger at the doorway. Eridine pushes herself flush to the wall on the hinge side of the door, while Girios tries to get a good grip on his club. The cleric can hold it no more and dashes away from the door as the howling creatures burst in and combat resumes. Round six, initiative. The angels, a three, the party, a four. As soon as they're through the door, the party is on them. Umura will throw her dagger at the child angel. 
She needs a 10 to hit him. An 11. That's a hit. Four. Two points of damage. It only had one left, and the moment it comes through the door, a well-placed shot drops it dead to the floor. Gyrios attacks the last remaining angel, the woman. A 19. For two points of damage, Gyrios cracks the female across the face with this club. Teeth fly, but she doesn't seem to notice. Aridine is going to try for a backstab. This is a special thief skill that allows her a plus four on her hit roll and double damage if she connects. The roll. A four. Somehow she misjudges the distance and connects with only air. The female angel will now attack Gyrios. She needs a nine to hit his armor class of nine. A one. That's a critical miss. The angel will miss her next turn. Aridine's momentum carried her into the creature and knocked it off balance. Round seven. Initiative is not necessary this round as the female angel has lost her turn. Essentially, this is a free round for the party. Umura is weaponless and cannot attack. She takes a moment to find a smashed bottle from the floor to use as a weapon. Gyrios tries to hit. A 17. Gyrios connects with the backhand swing for one point of damage. The angel has three left. Aridine will attempt to slash her with her dagger. It's a four. She's still off balance from her botched attempt. The creature's jerky movements have made it impossible for her to aim a strike. Round eight. Initiative. The angel. A five. The party. A four. The angel attacks Gyrios. A six. He shoves her back easily. Get off me! Umura tries to get into this fight and swings her broken bottle. A two. It's a wild swing and a bad miss. Gyrios attacks again. A twelve. That's a hit. He strikes her again for... Four points of damage. There is the sound of bone breaking. And the creature sprawls, face first, onto the glass-strewn floor, dead. And with that combat is over. Dramatis Personae Soli Many humans will tell you that at the moment of death you may see your whole life flash before your eyes. Perhaps because they live so much longer, the dwarves have a different saying. The dwarven belief is that if you die in combat, you are permitted to say goodbye to your loved ones before making the long journey to the Great Halls. So it was that Soli found himself transported from the place of battle. The reality of the underground laboratory melted away like wax by a flame and revealed a new reality behind it. He was seated in the driver's spot of their old pony-led wagon. They were on their way home from Burke. Behind him, in the bed of the wagon, Nofer and Dassin smoked pipes and argued good-naturedly. A beauty she was not, protested Dassin. In fact, her whole family was ugly. That's no way to talk about a lady, replied Nofer, gesticulating with his pipe. He was pointing the stem at Dassin, stabbing the air with it. She has several great assets. Two of them. 
Both dwarves burst into laughter at this witticism and leaned back against the carriage wall, savoring their pipes and a victorious business trip. The quartet was traveling southwest. They had traded every pound of iron ore they'd brought and were returning with an assortment of leather and wooden goods. Their wagon was light, as were their spirits. Helping matters, the weather was their friend. The sky was a cloudless blue, and the sun shone sweetly. Everywhere, spring was in the air. To their right, the endless columns of pines and oaks of the Kingswood panned by. To their left, gently rolling hills covered with tall yellow grass. Further south were the foothills of the Skundrumwar, their destination and home. They would carry on for another six hours or so, and then set up camp as the sun set. If they took an early start the next day, they could be home by late afternoon. The four of them could not have been less prepared for the ambush when it was sprung. Four black-fletched arrows streaked from the forest and thudded one after another into their pony's flank. The animal did not live long enough to make a sound. Instead, it crumpled headfirst into the dusty road. Immediately, a dozen green-skinned goblins sprinted toward them from the tree line, gibbering and whooping. In moments, they had the wagon surrounded. Nofer had been quick to react. He stood bravely in the bed, loaded crossbow already in hand and threatening the attackers in their own language. Dasin, for his part, had hit the deck. At a command from the largest goblin, another volley of arrows was loosed. A half-dozen arrows thudded into the stout dwarf from waist to neck. Nofer was knocked off his feet and landed dead beside his companion. Dasin lunged for Nofer's crossbow, but it was too late. A weighted and tarred net was thrown over the wagon, tangling the three remaining dwarves and rendering them helpless. Already the vile creatures were climbing the wheels and clambering into the bed. Their black lips were pulled wide as they grinned in anticipation of what would come next. Soli looked at Mulgi. The younger dwarf had tears behind his eyes and shook with fear. But Soli saw him slowly, bravely, reaching for his knife. In moments, the blows from clubs and whips would come raining down. Soli remembered every one. Then, all around them, reality began to fade to white. Soli had to squint to look at Mulgi as the brightness increased and the background became completely washed out. Then it was just the two of them in a vast infinity of whiteness. I'm sorry I couldn't protect you, he said. His brother looked back with compassion. I know. Mulgi began fading into the whiteness. I thought I'd found you. Are you? Mulgi shook his head and smiled. No, brother. I am yet alive. And then he was gone. The following podcast is not intended for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Iron Realm. When all planes of existence fall to ash, there is only one realm that remains.
iron realm. Before you in all directions, deep in the dark, there lies the maze. The iron realm. Millions of miles of corridors, caves, tunnels without end. This is the ultimate dungeon. Orcs, guys, kobolds, trolls. Ready your sword, your spells, your crossbow, your warhammer. The Iron Realm. Keep close your companions, for they are your only hope for survival. Elf, fighter, wizard, cleric. There are no rerolls. There is no way out. Yet here, in the dark, if any of the merciful gods still remain, you may find the strength you need to fight. The cunning you need to hide, and the luck you need to stay alive just a little longer. Iron Realm! Iron Realm! Iron Realm! I am your maze master, Abel Enzo. Get your dice and graph paper, and be sure to bring your friends. I'll see you in the realm. <laughs> Get the podcast at theironrealm.com or theironrealm.blogspot.com. There be dragons here. Chapter 7, Part 2, Day 2, Late Evening. Status, Kagan, 1 out of 8 hit points. Umura, 3 out of 5 hit points. Gyrios, 4 out of 7 hit points. Eridine, 3 out of 4 hit points. Spells available? None. The room was silent, but for the sound of their hard breathing. Gyrios was looking at the blood-covered weapon in his hand, as though he wondered what it was doing there. Umura broke the silence. Soli, oh no! The three went back to the corridor, Umura rushing ahead and the other two limping behind. They were hoping for a miracle. They found only grim reality. Soli's body splayed out on the floor in a pool of blood. If it were not clear from the lack of movement, the terrible wound in the dwarf's neck left no doubt that his life had ended. You tried to help him, didn't you? Eridine gently placed a hand on the other woman's shoulder. Normally, Umura might have pulled away from such a touch, but she did not this time. Yes, but it wasn't enough, was it? Umura's lower lip bent. This might have been prevented if I was stronger. Don't say such a thing, said Eridine. She didn't know what else to say. Sully was very brave. Sometimes the brave are the ones who pay the price, Gyrios intoned. If not, wherefore praise their courage? They stayed there for a while, grieving their friend. After a time, they got to the unhappy business yet to be done. First, the rest of the complex needed to be checked for further threats. At the end of the corridor, they found three painfully small cells. None had a door, but instead had a stake planted in the far corner. Each stake bore an iron ring to which unlocked manacles were attached. 
other than the stakes. The cells were featureless, save for a single dirty mattress. Clearly, these had been carried down from the barracks. The lowest level had only one other room. It was another rectangular room, some 20 by 30 feet, with a ceiling somewhat higher than the others. It was immediately clear that this was where the laboratory's owner had lived and slept. A bedroll, several cushions, and several thick books were on the floor. A bronze chamber pot sat beside the bedroll. Yet another volume, this one bound extravagantly in snakeskin, rested atop a table against the far wall. A silver candelabra holding five candles was set beside it. Finally, they found a wooden box containing a hooded lantern and three more flasks of oil. The party took it all, exchanging the clumsy large lamp for the superior lantern. Girios and Umura took some time to page through the books. One of them contained a student's notes as they tried to master the goblin tongue. Umura took this one, and the one bound in snakeskin, though at first glance its contents were far beyond her understanding. After they had finished securing the second level, the party sent Umura to retrieve Kagan and give him the bad news. I'm sorry to ask you to go, but I am afraid I can barely walk at the moment. The priest lifted his foot, indicating where he had stepped on a large shard of glass. Some minutes later, Umura returned with the fighter in tow. They both looked woeful, and Kagan, on seeing Soli, simply sighed deeply. I suppose we should carry him to the surface so we might bury him, said Kagan. We are already quite deep underground, said Girios. I think that if Soli's spirit could talk, it would tell us to bury him right here, rather than in some shallow grave under the sky. I also think, he continued, I also think it was no coincidence that I felt compelled to say that funerary prayer earlier on. Mazagar warned me I did not listen carefully. I shall pray for forgiveness this night through. The two men got to work with a pickaxe and shovel. Girios demanded that the family of creatures likewise be buried and receive their last rites. After all, it was not their fault they became what they did. Evening turned to late night as they worked. Some of them rested or slept as the hours crept by. Umura recalled the pages she'd taken from the laboratory and took this time to look them over. Not surprisingly, they were fragments of a lengthy formula for a serum that could destroy both mind and will. They confirmed her suspicion that the creatures they had destroyed had indeed once been human and had been turned into abominations by some kind of sick experiment. She strongly suspected that the two vials she carried contained the serum described in the recipe. She had a good idea of what she might do with those vials if they ever ran into the person responsible for all this tragedy. She also realized, with horror, that but for a few twists of fate, she, Kagan, Soli, Gyrios, and Eridine would have ended up themselves becoming these half-dead, wretched creatures. She wasn't sure if that was something she should mention. The others may have guessed it anyway. They dug the graves and buried the bodies. The creatures were buried in their own cells. Soli was buried in the room with them. Eventually, exhaustion overtook them and they slept on the hard dirt floor. Nobody wanted to touch the bedroll. Girios alone stayed awake. He lit the candelabra 
and maintained a vigil until every candle had burned to the nub. In the morning, the party will awake to find their joints stiff and their backs sore. Their wounds will have healed slightly. In any D&D game I ever played, the rule was always that a night's rest would restore a single hit point. Recently, while rereading the Moldvay edition of the basic rules, I noticed a surprising entry that described natural healing a little differently. It said 24 hours of uninterrupted rest would restore one to three hit points. I'm just going to go ahead and use both rules. An overnight rest will restore one point. A 24-hour uninterrupted rest will restore one to three. I'm aware that some listeners might be wondering, why doesn't the party's cleric do some healing? Isn't that what party clerics are there for? The rules of basic D&D stipulate that a cleric has to earn his spellcasting ability and will not receive his first spell until level two. I like this rule, so I'm using it. Level two is still several episodes away for Gyrios, providing he makes it that far. So the party does need to rely on natural healing for the time being. As of the next morning, here are the updated stats. Kagan, after rolling one to three hit points, earns just one hit point. Maybe this is the dice reminding me that Kagan had been up all night digging graves. He couldn't have been healing properly. Umura, she goes up one hit point and now has four out of five. Gyrios also earns one. He's at five of seven. Eridine, Earning one is back at full, four out of four hit points. Spells available. None. But wait a moment. Umura has discovered Derman's spellbook. But we'll have to wait until the next chapter to find out what she can do with it. Oh, and one more thing. All that time Kagan spent alone while the party adventured, he was not completely idle. He conducted a second search of both the barracks and the circular room and he came up with a few things the others had missed. One goblin had a filthy rag tucked into one of its leather bracers. This certainly appeared to be nothing better than the goblin's snot rag, and Kagan was about to throw it on the floor in disgust when he noticed that there was writing on it. More specifically, there was drawing. It was a crude map of the Kingswood, and on it were clearly marked the river, their tower, and a spot marked only with an X. He'll share this with his companions later in the day, along with, oh, there's one more thing. Kagan took a nice pair of boots from Dermond. He was planning on keeping them for himself until he saw what Gyrios had done to his foot. After that, he kind of had to give them to the cleric. As this episode comes to an end, our party is faced with a difficult decision between many choices. Will they split up or stay together? Will Eredin return to her hideout, looking for clues as to the fate of her lover, Swin? Will they investigate the X on Kagan's map? Will they go after the laboratory's owner seeking revenge or justice? Or will they instead seek refuge in the nearest town? We'll find out next time on Tale of the Manticore. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. 
it helps a great deal. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Are you looking for an RPG podcast that deals with today's hard social questions? Well, that's not us. We deal with games, gaming, and all things geek. We also ran a bit at the end. We are old and cranky after all. This is Biggest Geekus. I am Joe. And I'm Randy. 